This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Hello and welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. We are the narrators of our own lives. We control our perspectives by telling ourselves stories to make sense of the world. And sometimes those stories become a very powerful reality, and they can actually determine whether we're going to lead a healthy, productive life or get ourselves into trouble. Now, I'm not just talking about stories that we tell ourselves or we tell our kids. I'm talking about things in the culture that we hear so much about and we keep telling ourselves are true, but they're not. For example, there's the multi-billion dollar self-help industry, and there are popular programs that are supposed to discourage drug use and drinking and teen violence. And some of the programs, in fact, such as abstinence only or scared straight courses, actually have the opposite of their intended effect. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking with Timothy Wilson, who is a professor of psychology and an author of a great new book. And he's going to tell us about basically what works and what doesn't and why. Because the reality is that there's scientific evidence that shows that story editing, changing the stories that we've been telling ourselves or that we believe, can actually make you happier, can turn you into a better parent, can solve your teenager's behavior problems, reduce racial prejudice, and even close the achievement gap in education. But you've got to know how to do it. We'll start our conversation about redirecting our narratives right after this. More with Mr. Dad. Armin Brott, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. Hands can do incredible things. This is the sound of 326 hands playing Mozart. This is the sound of 10,942 hands showing appreciation. 64 hands building a house for the homeless. 142 hands swimming a triathlon. 18 hands winning the big game. And this is the sound of two hands helping to save a life. It's called Hands Only CPR, and it's recommended by the American Heart Association. If an adult suddenly collapses, call 911, then push hard and fast in the center of their chest until help arrives. It's incredibly easy and effective. Hands can do incredible things but nothing compares to using them to help save a life. Find out more about this latest method of CPR at handsonlycpr.org. A message from the American Heart Association and the Ad Council. Now, get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brott from the MrDad.com radio network. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Timothy Wilson, who's the author of Redirect, Changing the Stories We Live By. Tim, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. I have to say, I get a lot of books come in. I mean, a lot of books. And usually I'll open them up, take them out of the envelope, and and look at the cover, the front, the back. For some reason, I sat down and started reading Redirect. And, I mean, it's it's a nonfiction book about psychology, <laughs> and I read the thing from cover to cover. It was really riveting because it was so completely counterintuitive. You know, all the things that were told about the way that you should react, and I think the, the beginning chapters, I want you to talk about this, about 
police officers or uh, firefighters who are recovering from traumatic incidents, that the approach that is generally taken about basically don't talk about it is completely wrong. Yeah, well, thank you for the praise. And, and, um, you know, there's a lot of common sense out there, things our grandmothers told us, and some of it's right on the mark, but unfortunately not all of it. And and one of those is this idea that after we've experienced something uh, traumatic, that it's best to uh, get it out, to talk about it as soon as possible. And indeed, most uh, or many fire departments and police departments require that their officers go through this procedure if they've witnessed something horrific and, and relive it right afterwards. Well, it turns out that's the wrong thing to do, that uh, some evidence that it can actually make things worse by imprinting those memories in our minds and make it harder to forget them. And you know, at first, at least a little bit of distraction, getting back to your life is is not a bad thing. Okay. And then, but there's the stories that we kind of tell ourselves, the way that you characterize things that are also things that really that need to be looked at from a different perspective. And I think one of the, the really interesting ones, again, towards the beginning of the book, but you were talking about college students. Somebody gets to college and they do miserably on a math test. And there are, you, you give a couple of different kind of archetype characters. One child, or not child, one young person could say, you know, this just goes to show you that I really don't belong in college. And another one says, you know, this just goes to show you that, you know, maybe I need to work a little harder. And just that little tiny bit of an idea is very predictive of the future's success and the future ability or likelihood of finishing college for both of those kids. Yeah, well, a real theme of the book is this idea of storytelling, that, that we all tell stories to ourselves about who we are and what's happening to us and why we're doing what we're doing. And I think we all know that, but we sometimes forget how important it is and how that story or narrative can really set the path for our future in a good or bad way. And and that example you gave is based on a study I did many years ago where we we brought in uh, college students at the beginning of their career who weren't doing well and uh, did a little study where we assigned some of them to a condition where we tried to convince them that this wasn't a sign that they were failures or that they couldn't do it. It was a sign that they perhaps needed to learn the ropes more and, and work harder. And um, the ones who got that little redirection of their narrative, if you will, um, ended up doing much better in school and were more apt to stay in college. That the problem with these these negative narratives is they can really be self-fulfilling. And and the, you know, once we label ourselves as a failure, we give up. We don't try as hard. We don't study as much for the next test, and that confirms that view that we can't do it. Um, but, you know, a more optimistic view in many realms of life uh, makes us try harder and, and often leads to more success. Now, you mentioned in here also Carol Dweck, who's the, the author of some of my favorite studies, which we've talked about a lot in the show, which basically are the difference between somebody telling a child, you are really smart, or saying you really worked hard for this. And that those simple things can produce tremendous results, not not coming from the inside, but coming from the outside. Yes, and I'm, I'm I too am a big fan of Carol's work, and and I think it fits well into this uh, idea that that kids uh, certainly have narratives about themselves, and parents play a big role in instilling those narratives. 
And that that is a counterintuitive one. I know with my own kids, you know, we want to think of our kids as geniuses and, and kids who have high ability. And, and the temptation is to tell them that, oh, you know, if you, you did so well on the spelling test, you're really smart. But uh, Professor Dweck has shown persuasively that that kind of fixed mindset can actually be damaging and better to instill on our kids that it's all about growth and, and uh, learning and, and persistence that leads to success. All right, so we've got a little bit of background on the narratives that we tell each other or tell ourselves and the impact of that. Let, let's talk about how this can apply to parents and their kids. I mean, certainly telling your kids, we just talked about, you know, telling your kids not you're, you're so smart, but you really worked hard, and that's why you got a great grade in the spelling test is an important part of it. But what else is there that's, that parents can be looking out for? Well, there is a chapter in the book on parenting. And, and you know, the basic message is I think sometimes as parents we forget that um, it's not just our kids' behavior we're trying to mold, but really their, their views of themselves, their narratives. We want them to have healthy views of themselves in the world so that as they get older and when they're not around us, they're apt to, to respond in the right way. And, you know, these narratives can be anything from real core uh, senses of themselves as, and what relationships are like, attachment narratives as, as to uh, what they can expect in close relationships, to um, other kinds of narratives as to, you know, why they should or should not um, uh, smoke or drive dangerously or... Or, I mean, narratives take many forms in how they view themselves. And I think parents, as I said, play a key role in helping to shape those narratives. And are you suggesting that these are the kinds of things that we can teach our kids independently? Or do we need to have this with the, the safety net of a, of a person like yourself who can walk us through the whole process? Well, I think there's a lot parents can do themselves, and, and um, I think it's, uh, it's not always easy, I can say, as a parent myself, but, um, you know, instilling these core attachment narratives is, is really a matter of being responsive to our kids and, and um, looking for, at their needs and delivering consistent, dependable care. Um, I think that's a pretty basic one that most parents know that, that uh, you know, how to do. Um, but some some of them are maybe not quite as obvious, and and um, one I guess I would say is how to dole out rewards and punishments. It's something we all do as parents to reward our kids when they do something well, and if we want them to play the piano, to maybe uh, reward them for for practicing. Um, and punishments, you know, we we sometimes have to discipline our kids. Um, but I think what we sometimes forget is that's conveying a message to the kids, too, as to why they're doing what they're doing. And the basic message there is do it with as light a hand as possible um, for both rewards and punishments. That if we go overboard, let's take rewards, that, that we really want our kids to um, learn how to play the piano. Um, if we reward them a lot for practicing, they, they will do it. Rewards are powerful. If, if you know, their favorite thing is ice cream and we give them ice cream every time, they will practice. But what we forget is what that, what's that doing to their narrative, to their understanding of why they are playing the piano. The stronger the reward, the more they're apt to say, I'm doing it for the ice cream. It's not that I really like this. In fact, uh, too much, too, 
too much of an emphasis on rewards has been shown to undermine interest. It sends the message that this must be something bad if you have to reward me so much for it. And so the trick is to, uh, we do want to nudge our kids in the right direction and, and get them to be well behaved, but to do it with a sufficiently strong reward or punishment that does the job, not so strong that that's why they think they're doing it, if, if you follow me there. Oh, yeah. Well, the goal of, of either way, of a punishment or a reward, would be essentially to get the kid to be able to make the right decisions on his own. Exactly. And and if they if the message they're taking the, saying to themselves, I'm just going to do the right thing when mom and dad are around so I can get the reward or avoid the punishment, then they're not necessarily going to do the right thing when we're not around. Um, but if we instill that that uh, narrative that this is something I want to do or, or not do, that, that's really the key. Timothy Wilson is the author of Redirect, Changing the Stories We Live By. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I'm going to keep talking to Timothy about changing our narratives and how simple tweaks can have pretty significant results. I'm Armin Brunt, and you're listening to Positive Parenting. I'm in almost every school bus and classroom. I go to school with your children. We say the Pledge of Allegiance together. You see me around the neighborhood, and you tell me that I'm a pretty good kid. Well, I'm one out of every five children in America, and I'm struggling with hunger. This problem is closer than you think. My teacher tells me we can grow up to be whatever we want. I want to grow up to be someone who doesn't go to bed hungry. There's enough food in this country to feed everybody. Please visit feedingamerica.org today and find your local food bank for ways to help. Every dollar you donate helps provide eight meals for kids like me, quietly struggling with hunger. Together, we are Feeding America, brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Hi, it's Practical Polly's radio show. If you're just figuring out that healthier cooking oils are better than solid fats, you may be asking, now what am I going to do with all these tubs of lard? Ever had one of those moments when your favorite skinny jeans feel too tightly tailored? <laughs> Generously apply lard to your hips and thighs and those fancy pants will slide on like a dream. Or here's a family-friendly idea. How about making your yard into a lard fun park? Frost your driveway with a nice thick coating and give those kiddos a downhill thrill no matter what time of year. Having a bad hair day? Yep, a little lump of lard can tame your flyaways in a jiffy. So there's no need for that lard to go to waste or to your waste. But get your best heart-healthy trade-up with healthier oils, like canola, olive, or other vegetable oils, which can actually lower your chances for heart disease. Now that's a tip worth keeping for life. Learn more at heart.org slash face the fats. Canola Info is the national supporter of the American Heart Association's Face the Fats campaign. Now, get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brott from the MrDad.com radio network. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Timothy Wilson, who's the author of Redirect, Changing the Stories We Live By. I wanted to talk about another issue I think that I think was just fascinating, how volunteering can affect pregnancies, teen pregnancies. Yeah, that's a great one. Um, you know, it's a program that, uh, well, let's frame the question this way, that, um, you know, teenage pregnancy is, is alarmingly high in, in the United States, and 
Um, you know, let's put on our hat as, as social scientists. What sort of programs could we um, uh, give in schools or, or recommend that parents do that would make kids act more responsibly? Um, well, it probably doesn't come as you know, right to mind that I should get my kids to do volunteer work. But in fact, there's a program that shows that indeed is, is a, a good way. And so the question is why? You know, what does volunteering have to do with uh, teenage kids having unprotected sex? Well, um, what these programs suggest is that you know, the kids who are most likely to act out and, and do dangerous things are those who feel disconnected from their their world, they feel that their environment, their community isn't really, uh, they don't feel part of it, they, they feel um, alienated. And nudging them into doing some volunteer work can forge those connections, make them feel more valued, make them feel like there's something they care about. Uh, they view themselves differently as someone who has a stake in the community. In this program, it's done through a health class in schools. Kids are asked to do a certain amount of volunteer work during the year, but they have a lot of choice as to, as to what kind of work. They, they could choose a, a senior center or a preschool or, or a homeless um, shelter. And the hope is that they really do get into it and develop some, uh, some bonds there, which, which often does happen. And as a result of that, kids who were, this is a, a well-done experiment where some kids were randomly assigned to do this program and some were in a control group that didn't. And, and the ones who did it, um, the girls were uh, less apt to become pregnant to a fairly substantial extent, and they also um, got better grades. And um, I think you know, one reason for that is this, it changed their narrative. They, they really began to view themselves differently as, as a result of that volunteer work. Now, one of the issues I think is, is so difficult, and it runs throughout this book, is how you unlearn negative narratives. How do you begin to start that? I mean, first of all, how do you recognize that you have a negative narrative to begin with? And then once you decide that, I mean, how it's not like you just throw a switch and all of a sudden start talking in different terms, is it? Well, uh, good point. And, um, you know, I, I think there are signs that, that we are going in the wrong direction, if we're really uh, worried about some aspect of our lives and, and uh, there's something that preys on us we can't seem to get over. And, and, um, but one uh, avenue to take is that social psychologists have developed some quite effective writing exercises that um, it can be as simple as taking out a piece of paper and before you go to bed at night, for about 10 or 15 minutes, just write about what's troubling you and, and as uh, free a manner as, as you can. And um, a psychologist named James Pennebaker at the University of Texas has tested this, this procedure. And you know, what he tends to find is that um, it's painful at first. One reason we tend not to do this is it's, it's hard to confront what's troubling us. And people often cry and, and get upset as, as to uh, what they're writing about. But in the long run, this, this opening up, as he calls it, has amazing benefits that it I think it lets us view the, our situation a little differently, allows us to uh, maybe find different meaning in it in a way that allows us to get beyond it. And uh, people who do this writing exercise, you know, maybe two or three, four nights in a row, uh, in, in Pennebaker studies, he finds they have better functioning immune systems and better health. Um, if they're employees, they show up at work more. If they're students, they um, do better in school. So, you know, it sounds magical, but it, but it often can be very helpful to uh, to do that. 
Yeah, that's the whole thing. I was sort of thinking about going into the kitchen in a Chinese restaurant or something is sort of the the old thing about, you know, you don't want to know. You just don't <laughs> want to know what's going on. So is is this one of these things that you just do it because it works, or or is there an actual way to answer the question why? Uh, you mean why why do it, or what, why am I feeling no, why, the way I why am? does it work? Why does writing in a journal a couple, you know, 15 minutes I a see. night, you know, how uh, does that help you? Yeah, well, you know, I think the evidence shows that it, it, it works through this process of meaning change, that, that it's often hard. We get stuck in one way of looking at something, and it's hard to gain perspective. And some recent studies show that it, it, this kind of writing exercise is especially effective if we take a third-person perspective. So we uh, imagine you're a fly on the wall looking at uh, um, our particular situation. So, you know, imagine if you're having trouble with your boss and, and you had some angry uh, blow-up with, with your boss, um, when you think about it, we tend to re-experience it and immerse ourselves and, and ruminate about it. But if we can imagine we were a fly on the wall looking at it as someone else would, we often gain a perspective that we didn't have and maybe see that, oh, you know, maybe I was a little bit, I contributed more to that than I thought and I can take this step to solve it and, and now I understand more where my boss was coming from. And, and it's this reconstrual or, or change in meaning that, that really is, is helpful. One of the difficulties, it seems, and you point this out quite a bit, about different programs and different approaches is measuring them, and certainly you're able to to measure some results of you know, the, the journal keeping and things like that, but how do you separate out so many different factors? I mean, there, there's one of the chapters called Scared Crooked, which starts off with a, a line about a football coach in Oakland, California, which is where I live, and, you know, how, so the, he's talking about preventing kids from dying, from not not just dying, I mean, from being killed, from homicides. He he's goes to goes yeah. to more more funerals than graduations. How do you know that it's just the program as opposed to something else? Well, I mean, I, I love that example because that, that fellow who it was so well-meaning. I mean, he, he cared deeply about um, the young people he was working with. And he, he went so far as to get a second job in a funeral home in order to take his kids and show them it was kind of a scared straight program. You know, here's what's going to happen to you if, if you join gangs and right, so on. Right, right. And he was so well-meaning, but, but unfortunately it's an approach that has been shown not to work very well. And in fact, scared straight programs, if anything, do more harm than good. And the way we know this is there are social scientists out there doing good experimental work where, where kids are randomly assigned to take place take part in a scare state straight program or not and then you follow the kids and, and see what happened to them so you know the good old-fashioned experimental method is I think sometimes we forget that applies as equally to interventions um, to prevent violence as it does to developing a new drug to cure cancer or something we, we really have to test these things rigorously let me ask you a little bit about peer pressure because that is for for teenagers especially and tweens a tremendously influential part of, of what goes on in their life. And we're talking about in the book about how you can use these narrative changing things to overcome the, but I'm doing this because I want everybody to like me, or I'm doing this because everybody else does it, sort of peer pressure type of thing. How does that work? Yeah, well, you're certainly right that, uh, you know, when kids get into those teenage years, their peers mean more to them than their parents often. And, um, you know, one thing we're finding is that often kids have misperceptions as to what those norms are, and just correcting that misperception can help. So, 
there are programs on college campuses to try to reduce alcohol abuse that just correct students' um, nor, uh, uh, perceptions of how much other people are drinking. And on almost any, every college campus where it's been studied, students overestimate that. They think, oh, everyone's out drinking, and, and I probably should too, when in fact many people aren't. The, the drinking is not as common as, as the kids think. So that's one thing we can do is just correct those misperceptions um, and then hope our kids choose wisely who their friends are. And, of course, when kids are younger, we maybe have a little bit of control over that as to who they hang out with. It's harder when kids get older, but, but um, uh, you, there are programs that um, bring troubled kids together thinking it will help, and sometimes that's the worst thing we can do is to take kids who are um, – uh, headed in the wrong direction and bring them together so they can impress each other with you know, how dangerous they're, they're behaving or, or what have you. <laughs> Timothy Wilson is the author of Redirect, Changing the Stories We Live By. Timothy, thanks for joining us. Really fascinating. Uh, thank you. It's been great to be here, Armin. Driving has a rhythm all its own. Don't wreck it with a text. Before you get behind the wheel, silence your phone. Or better yet, designate a texter. For more text-free driving tips, visit StopTextStopRex.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Did you know when you donate a kidney, you give the gift of life? I had no idea you could donate an organ while you were still alive. If I'm born with two healthy kidneys but only need one, and I could really improve somebody else's life, why not? When I think of giving up something I don't need in exchange for a life, it's no contest. If I had another one, I'd do it again. Visit the National Kidney Foundation at kidney.org. Now you know. Hi, welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brunt, and it's time for another Parents at Play segment. As many of you know, I've got an 11-year-old, and I can tell you that the older she gets, the harder it is to find games and toys and activities that we can do together because she's got so darn much other stuff going on. So this week, I wanted to focus on toys and games that you might be able to do with a tween or a pre-tween. Let's start off with Bounce Off from Mattel. So you have to envision the playing board, which is a 6x6 grid. You and your opponent bounce colored ping pong balls into that grid, and what you're trying to do is match the design on one of the challenge cards. It's really one of these things that's simple but not easy. It's probably going to remind you a little bit of one of those carnival games, you know, the kind at the county fair where you spend about 50 bucks trying to bounce a ping pong ball into the mouth of a bottle so that you can win a giant panda or something like that that you don't really want and probably could have bought for $25 anyway, and it's too big to fit in your car. But Bounce Off is a lot cheaper, and it's a lot more fun. Now, there are two different levels of cards. There's the easier ones that maybe have two or three balls in a row, and that could be like an L shape or a, a plus shape. Or there are harder ones, which are, are a lot more difficult to do. They may require six balls, in a, not in a row, but six balls in some various configuration, and they're pretty hard to do. So you'll be able to play it with kids of varying levels of coordination and interest. Bounce Off is for two to four players aged five and up, but I think it's really going to be more interesting for the tweens. Costs about 18 bucks at places like Target, or you can look at Mattel.com. Next up, we've got the Science X Fueling Future Car from Ravensburger. 
Sure. You know, everybody talks about solar power and fuel cells, but does anyone know exactly how they work? Well, by the time you are done putting together this very cool model, you and your child absolutely will. So you start with the guide, which explains what an electric car is and what all the components are. And then the real work starts. This kit comes with almost all the switches and solar cells and magnets and other stuff you need to conduct nine separate propulsion-related projects. All you need to do is supply the battery. You and your child are going to have a blast discovering the future of automotive technology. And the cars you build, this is the best part of all, they actually work. The Science X Fueling Future Car is about $44. It's best for kids who are 8 and up, or you can get it at Ravensburger.com. Next up, we've got Girl Mazing from Jada Toys. Girl Mazing is a line of remote control cars that's aimed at girls. You can get a Chevy Camaro, a Ford Mustang, a Lamborghini Murcielago, and a Jeep. All of them are 1 16th scale and customizable. Each one comes with a lot of different colored stickers. And speaking of colors, they're pink. I, I really don't understand why so many products for girls have to be pink. As the dad of three daughters, I can assure you that girls are interested in other colors as well. But pink or not, the Girl Amazing models are a great way for parents, especially dads, to connect with their daughters. The Jeep is $24.95. All the rest of them are $19.99. And you can get them at your favorite retailer or at jadatoys.com. You can get some more details about these and many, many other toys and games we've reviewed at parentsatplay.com. We'll have another segment for you next week. Until then, I'm Armin Brott. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.